This podcast is recorded and produced on the unceded lands of the Darkinyung people, and I acknowledge them as the traditional owners. You have no idea if you are paying for childcare, taking all this time off, risking your job for nothing. Hi, I'm Amy Pearson, and this is Mother Other. Join me as I ask the big, juicy questions exploring the impact that becoming a mother has had on the inner and outer lives of my guests. It's extremely humid where I am right now on the east coast of Australia in the midst of a damp summer. I'm sitting at my desk surrounded by toys strewn across the floor by my children. My toddler is having his midday nap and I appreciate how lucky I am that he still has one of those. My eight-month-old baby is lounging on the front porch with her dad, watching the world go by on this gloomy but grossly hot day. It's been a while since I've last spoken to you, what with Christmas, New Year's and a spike in mayhem worldwide, the pandemic that never ends. I feel like the last three years have blended into one big, long, confusing amalgamation of chaos and disorder. Sometimes I wonder if it's the fault of the pandemic, the fact that I have two children at home in nappies whilst trying to work, or both. Speaking of working from home, today on the show I am speaking with the New York Times bestselling author, Sally Hepworth. If you've walked into a bookstore in the past decade, you're bound to have seen her work. She's published seven novels, all of which have been written alongside her role as a mother. Sally announced to her own mum that she would write a book just three days after the birth of her first baby. This is one of the many reasons that Sally Hepworth is a marvel. Sally lives with her family in Melbourne where she writes novels from her home office. Her husband, also known as Mr Sally Hepworth, now works as her assistant, alongside fitting comfortably into the role of house duties and homeschooling during the pandemic. But it wasn't always this way. She recalls cancelling her gym membership when money was tight so that she could pay for childcare, which would give her time to write, and later she would sit in the car and write whilst watching her kids at extracurricular activities. Sally and I discuss her path to becoming the breadwinner in her home, the shock of her first birth and how that impacted her ability to connect with her baby as quickly as she imagined she would, mothering two neurodiverse children, the dynamic dance of parenthood between her partner and herself. Sally brought something really fresh to the table for this endless discussion on motherhood, and that is that motherhood is a theme in everyone's life, not just mothers. It sounds so simple when I say it like that, but it really did hit me that it's not just mothers who have a motherhood experience or an awareness of that role. Everyone on this earth, in one way or another, has experienced motherhood. Whether they lost their mother, they were mothered by another type of mother figure, whether they have a terrible relationship with their mother, it's all motherhood. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Motherhood has no universal script, universal experience, or universal role. Even though, universally, we've all experienced motherhood in one way or another. I feel so lucky to have had this conversation with one of Australia's most admired writers and mothers, and I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed chatting with Sally. Trigger warning, Sally discusses miscarriage, trying to conceive, and traumatic birth during this episode. If you're currently sensitive to this topic, please go gently. So today on the show, I am thrilled to be joined by Melbourne-based author Sally Hepworth. 
New York Times bestselling author of seven novels, including The Good Sister, which was an instant bestseller, and her brand new release, The Younger Wife. Her domestic thriller novels are laced with quirky humour, sass, and a darkly charming tone. Welcome to Mother Other Sally. It's so wonderful to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Would you like to start us off by telling us who you are a mother to? I'm a mother to three children. My oldest son is called Oscar. He's 12. My uh, older daughter, Eloise, is nine. And my little one, Clementine, is four. Wonderful. I love the names. You've picked great names. <laughs> Let's go back to who you were pre-motherhood. What did your career look like back then before you had kids? I, well, I, I finished uh, high school. I went to university and did an arts degree. And, and part of that was around the fact that I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved to write. And for a little while, I thought maybe I, I wanted to be a journalist. Maybe, you know, that's what writers do. Uh, and, and certainly some of my school teachers were pushing me in that direction. And I went to one of those open days at RMIT uh, for journalism and I remember sitting in the little seat listening to the professor or whoever was telling us what was going to happen and they were saying so as a journalist you need to read all of the newspapers you need to watch the news you need to keep an eye on these foreign affairs and I just thought I like reading magazines <laughs> you know this is this is going back 20 years I yeah. like reading, you know, New Idea and I like mm. celebrity gossip and foreign affairs and, and politics. This is not what I want to do. Mm. And uh, my mother and father both did arts degrees in amongst other things. And my mum said, I think that would be a really good thing for you to do. And as it turns out, I think it should be a prerequisite for everyone, just the, the general uh, knowledge and ability to question and understand and provide context that that you get from from that degree um mm. I, I think is just immeasurable in what it gives you in life and I think it's so sad the way uh that degree at least in my day was mm. downplayed you know people would yeah. say do you need do you want prize with that that that's what you get uh, with your arts degree and and I have not found that to be the case in fact uh my a lot of my friends who did arts degrees have gone on to be some of the most successful people that I know but I'll park that that conversation for another time yeah no so, I I agree with you I did one as well but I mean I'm you? not a best-selling author but I still did one and I'm doing all right <laughs> you're you're doing you're doing very well and you know and, and success <laughs> I, could, I could talk about that in, a, in another uh, conversation and maybe we can later and, and yes. how people define that as well because yes. I think that's yes. uh, it, it, it's, it's very certainly not the way that we we typically think of it which is money or prestige but that's that's yes. another conversation so I, I finished that degree I thought what the hell am I going to do I got a very entry-level job in event management mm -hmm. um you know fairly administrative and then I I worked my way into organizing events um uh, music festivals and all sorts of really interesting um fun things I then uh, did a postgraduate qualification in human resources because as someone who's quite interested in people, I thought, how can I work in business? Because I knew I wanted to make some money, um, but also find out the really good 
gossip and I thought HR is the career for me. <laughs> I want to know how much everyone's paid. I want to know who's yeah. having an affair with who. Um, and that was why, that was honestly what got me into HR and, in fact, what made me so terrible at it because I was just an insatiable gossip. But and, it makes you um, a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it got me all the intel. But now I, I look back at that time and think, how did I not lose my job? Um, but I won't tell you some of the things I did because you know, if things don't work out with writing, I might end up back there uh, looking for a job. Um, but I, I was working in HR. I was living over in Canada and uh, because my husband, in the meantime, through all of that, I met my husband who's um, British, but he was living in Australia. And his job moved us over to Canada for three years as as expats as it were Uh, and uh, I worked there in HR I became pregnant with my first child and I said and I I did a podcast with my mum yesterday and she said I'll never forget the moment that uh, because mum was over for for my son's birth and she said you were sitting there with this three-day-old baby and you looked at me and said I think I'm going to write a book mum I'm going (laughs) to need something to do in in this year off and she said I looked at you and I thought okay you smart little thing she said I you know one what am I going to do with all my time off and and she didn't give that away actually that was going on in her head but to me she said I think that would be fantastic Sally and then she got on a plane and flew back to Australia Um, wow it was the beginning of it and and Mm. it was certainly not uh you know, as easy as I thought it was going to be when my baby was three days old. It was a lot yes. of um, sneaking things in, but I did. Yeah. I, I did it in the end. And, Amazing. And there was it wasn't a, a clear journey from there. There was you know going back to work and you mm. know writing more books, but but that was the beginning of it, I guess. So back to just previously before you had the baby, did you plan to have a baby? Had you always wanted to have a baby? What was that like for you? Always always wanted okay. to have babies, um, always loved children mm. um, at the risk of a cliche, uh, of that cliche saying I always felt like I was a bit of a child. I had that childish spirit. Um, I sought out children, you know, if, if they were and still do, you know, if they are at a party. Um, and, you know, as to, to why... I have very little, I give very little thought to the reasons why I do mm. anything. Um, yep. But, but motherhood, motherhood is interesting in the sense that um, it, it doesn't make sense. Otherwise, no one would ever do it. But it was that, that deep yearning. And, um, and for me, yes, I have friends who never thought they would and then they did. I have other friends who always thought they would and then either couldn't or changed their mind and, uh, you know, decided they didn't want to. For me, it was a it was an unknowing I guess mm. and that sounds smug because I was then able to but the desire was was yeah. innate yeah. yeah so it's interesting you just talked about a little bit about that um that feeling you had when you had your newborn because when I was researching for this interview I actually discovered which I hadn't known that you wrote your first book while you were on maternity leave with your first baby and I just thought what an incredible achievement times two because one you just became a mother and two you're writing a book so amazing Uh, a few things I want to touch on here so first of all what was your postpartum experience like during that time was it smoother sailing for you or was it a struggle but also 
What was it that sparked this idea to write the book? Well, just to, to step back a little bit, my son, I had a, a very early miscarriage. Uh, sorry, I had a, a later miscarriage right before I had my son. So I really, we tried for him. We wanted him. He was, um, and, and yes, we lost a, a baby before um, in the second trimester. And mm. so when he came, it was a horrendous pregnancy, morning sickness all the way till the end, uh, a discovery of, of an anomaly halfway through again, which, mm. you know, it, it was just horrendous. And then uh, his birth was five days long. I was induced to when he was two weeks wow. overdue. And it just, he just did not want to come out. And, and it was very uh, arduous, we would mm. say, that, mm-hmm. that birth and, um, and traumatic. Then he came out. Uh, the love was not instant. It took, um, it, because I was just shell-shocked, yeah. And uh, it took five days for the love to come. And I remember mm-hmm. it really clearly. And it wasn't hate either. It was no. just exhaustion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why I like to talk about it because mm. as someone who always wanted children, mm. I thought it was going to be instant. Um, and, it, and it wasn't. But I fell in love with him when he was five days old in the doctor's office while we were waiting to see the doctor and I was holding him and he breathed on me and and my heart moved in my chest you know that that and I yeah. hear women describe that feeling mm. at different times it might be the moment they were handed their baby it might be you know mm. it might be a year later if they had postpartum depression but it's the mm-hmm. same feeling yeah um and and I had that feeling uh then and from then on and to this day, he's now 12, he has been a delight. Mm. And he was the reason that I was able to write that book because, and, and he has been, he's autistic, he's very comfortable with me talking about that. He's high functioning, what, what once have been called an Aspie. Um, and uh, and he was like that as a baby. <laughs> he would just sleep when he was supposed to sleep and he would, you know, love to schedule. And, wow, uh, that's amazing. And was it? a really good little baby and I could not have written a book during during maternity leave with either of my daughters yeah (laughs) let's just say that yeah you Um, had both ends of the of of the stick in terms of babies I did I did and and, and to be clear I want any mother who thinks that they should be able to write a book on maternity leave yeah um to just have that context that I had a lot of difficulties before he yeah. came out yeah. and he was the perfect baby to write a book with. So I don't think any other babies exist like him, but who knows. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the second part, why that book? Look, it, for me, and I said this recently too, it's never been about that book, and whether it was the first book or the last one that I've written. A lot of writers talk about the book of their heart and it's a story that they've been pining on and sitting on and developing. It might be a, a personal story that they've had about their grandmother or their or, or someone they know or something that they, you know, a story they want to tell about their sexual abuse or, or you know, there are so many deeply personal mm. stories that I hear people talk about that they want to tell. For me, it's always been about the storytelling rather than the particular story I'm happy to tell any story I want to tell us I want to tell stories for a living and anything that will take you on that journey is the story that I want to tell and so 
that first book, it was about a, a woman who was married to a, a British man, which I was, um, and and she was living in England, and then she went to live in the south of France, and and it, it was about different cultural relationships, really, and and that was relevant to me because I was living in Canada with a British man, and I was Australian. I'd just given birth to this tri-nationality baby, hmm. um, but but ultimately that was not the book of my heart, and and in a way have any of them been possibly the good sister which was my book uh, my previous book which features a autistic heroine um writing a neurodiverse character has certainly been a big part of me Mm. there's pieces of me in every book but none Mm. of them are kind of the reason I wrote I guess yes so interesting to hear so motherhood brings with it an ultra sort of physical and psychological shift which is often different for each person individually. Some people don't feel it as much as others. You just mentioned you have a close circle of friends. So what I was going to ask was, did you have or find anyone who was also going through the changes and the the shift in life that you were at the same time? The first time I was living in Canada, as I said, and so it was a little different because while I had some friends and I'd been in Canada for a couple of years when I had my son and I'd worked, they were new friends and yep. lovely friends and I'm still in touch with them, but, and that they were also work friends predominantly. Yep. And I had just left that work uh, setting and, and their lives were now different to mine. So um, early on, I, I found that interesting and I I remember actually being in Canada my baby was uh my baby Oscar is his name (laughs) um was just a few days old and I went in Canada the wonderful thing is that the baby it's free yeah there's a public health system I had my baby it was free there's no private health system which I think I'm a bit of a socialist like that I think that's wonderful but they boot you out of the hospital the next day (laughs) And so I was at home and no one was coming to admire my baby. And I thought, I need some people to like mm. come in. And, and so I, I walked down to Starbucks with my baby in the, <laughs> the thing and I, I angled him out, outwards. And I sat there with my coffee and he was so new. So everyone yeah. that walked past, uh, they stopped to admire him. And I just yeah. sat there and drank in all of yeah. that, that admiration. So the network was lacking but I then I made a good mum friend in the Starbucks who had a similar age child and I bowled up to her and said you've got a baby so do I and we started having play dates that's amazing yeah and then shortly after that I guess I think Oscar was about eight months old we moved back to Australia um I I obviously then had old friends but I think probably the most important thing that you need is is mothers with babies your age and so the mother's group program that we run in Australia while not perfect you know I know some people have had kind of difficult experiences with their mother's group but um, for me that was my network uh, because their babies were exactly the same age it wasn't like my friend who had a two-year-old or you know another friend who had a six-year-old um, I had these these women and our kids are all in grade six at the moment they're all still good friends the mums all still meet up uh, regularly and, you know, they've become like sisters. So mm, was, that's, that's so that nice. Wonderful. Yeah, that's really amazing. Yeah. In in terms of the way, staying on the sort of the subject of matrescence, I guess you would call it, have you thought about how much motherhood has impacted your identity? I mean, I know uh, one little aspect I've noticed is 
the theme of motherhood comes up a lot in your work. I mean, you have books titled The Secrets of Midwives, The Mother's Promise, The Mother-in-Law, and your latest book, which we will discuss soon, has a thread of motherhood woven throughout. So, yeah, I wonder how much motherhood is sort of showing up in your life outside of actually mothering and how it's sort of shaped who you are. Such a great um, question. And, And as you were asking, I was just thinking about whether or not it is becoming a mother I mean that definitely gives you another viewpoint but in fact motherhood is part of your life your whole life I am lucky enough to still have my mother but people who don't have their mothers are so aware of of that um that that loss you know yeah yeah and and so we sort of we grow up with a a, an awareness of, of that role and uh and certainly both my mum and dad lost their mothers when they were very young and so motherhood's been something I've always been very aware of and as Mm. I said I always wanted to become a mother I think what has actually shocked me and I don't hear a lot of people say this and I don't know if it is um if it's just me or if it says something about me as a mother but what's been shocking to me is how much I feel the same (laughs) Wow. And, and not that, that motherhood had I, I feel like I'm exactly the same person that yeah. I was before and uh I don't know even that I feel I hear these beautiful things about people saying that their heart has expanded or they feel things more I feel like I was always a, a deep feeler uh, yeah, you know okay. I, I did always have great empathy for, yeah. for people and having children has created people that I love who are part of my circle who are my you know, my ride or die people, but Mm. I don't feel like I'm a different person because of it. You know, I I feel like I feel exactly the same. I don't feel like I suddenly grew these wings, you know, that I thought that I was going to and and become, uh, you know, Martha Stewart's the wrong one. Who's a real heroine mum, you know, (laughs) leave it to Beaver's mum or something. Don't please, don't leave her a better name. Um, that didn't happen to me. I, I always felt a little bit um, like I was learning from them, and uh, and I think I'm a really good mum. I'm really mm. proud of my kids, and I'm proud of our relationship. Mm. Um, but I I feel like I'm fundamentally exactly the same person that I That's was fumbling my way through. Yeah. yeah. It's not a bad thing. I mean, I think on the on this podcast, I ask this question a lot and I, I get one of two answers. It's either I'm completely different, it's completely changed me or no, I'm I'm pretty much the same person, you know, and I just find it so yeah. interesting who says what. So on the topic of motherhood and mothering as basically the whole podcast is, but I am curious, how do you divide parenthood with your partner? What does the day-to-day juggle look like in your home? How do you share your role together, roles together? Christian and I uh, have have been in every seat. So when uh, we first had Oscar, it was Christian's job um, that took us to Canada and I took maternity leave that year. Yeah. Uh, then we returned to Australia. Uh, eventually I went back to work part-time. Uh, so we were both working and then I had another baby and so I was kind of the secondary parent slash primary caregiver. Christian mm. was working. Uh, then... As my book career took off, uh, Christian and I both worked full time and we uh, shared the parenting uh, 50-50. He's always been a, um, a 
equal partner. I hate yep, people who yep. say a good, a good dad or, a, a, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a, I, I was lucky. No, yeah. he did. He, he contributed as a parent, which which was wonderful. And yep. then most the recently... Bar is, the bar is pretty low, really, isn't it, for, for husbands in some is. regards? Yeah. <laughs> it, it can be, shockingly mm. so. And that's, that's yeah. never been the case for me. And when I yeah. was the primary parent, Christian was a was a was an active parent when he was not at work so yeah um that was the case for us and then now everything changed last year in the lockdown we were both working full-time but Christian really my career had started to take priority Christian was the one who stepped up and did most of the homeschooling and then in January he quit his job to become the primary carer um, of our kids while they're a little older now we've got um, a 12 year old and a nine-year-old they both have additional needs which was taking up um, more of our time um, and we have a little one who's still at, at home who starts mm. the next year so um, Christian has uh, become the primary caregiver and then next year he's going to work for me so um, our day-to-day is largely uh, uh, a reverse of 1950s role where I work and he looks after the kids and uh but as before when Christian was was the primary uh, earner we share it we share the role when when, when I'm not at work um I jump yeah. in and and help with with not help and parent my my children <laughs> um but yeah but he he does the lion's share of the uh the home the the, the cooking and the mm. um the cleaning because that's just that's their things that naturally are more appealing to him Mm. we have a similar situation in our home do you yeah and I love it that way and my partner's happy that way too and so it's really nice to have that sort of yeah people are kind of surprised sometimes when they know that my partner does the washing and my partner does the cleaning and I'm like well women have done it for the entirety of history so what's the problem with men doing it sometimes now too and my dad always did laundry, so I I have always thought of, of the laundry as as a man's job, <laughs> which, which people laugh about. But do you know one thing that I was I was really laughing at yesterday um, about that I never experienced as a stay at home mom uh, because in general Christian has a good time with it and he loves kids and he's very involved. But he took Clementine and her little friend to the park uh, yesterday. And they were having a lovely play and then Clementine needed to go to the toilet. So he took them both to the toilet and it was one of those outdoor, you know, the ones that you press a button and the door closes and the music plays and then you press the button and it opens. And so he said he got into the toilet and then he realised that he left the little friend outside the toilet. And we know this girl very well. (laughs) And he thought, "Mm, probably shouldn't do that in case she gets stopped. So he pressed the button. The door slid open, but the automatic door, when it opens, flushes the toilet. So then the <laughs> toilet flushed, sprayed out at Clementine, who was on the toilet. She starts screaming. Then the door opens and her little friend sees her screaming, starts screaming. And then two very aggressive looking mums, fair enough, come in and see this man in the toilet with two screaming children. Oh, no. And if, if you think, Christian, he's the most bumbling, sweetest Englishman who just didn't have the situation well. And the first thing he said was, well, she's not mine. And he said, 
I don't know why I said that. I'm like, well, yeah, it's probably not the best thing to lead with. And he said, finally, he had to get that the mothers he asked Clementine, is this your your dad and are you happy to go with him? And and I thought, you know, and we laughed and laughed because of course we know that he is her dad and that's fine. But <laughs> yeah. and I don't even I don't even blame the women because imagine, you know, that had gone yeah. wrong and maybe we do have a responsibility. But no matter how many similar situations I have been in like that, no one has ever questioned my child and if they're happy to come with me. So in some ways the revolution hasn't been complete, has it, in terms of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so (laughs) funny. What an uncomfortable situation to be thrown into. I I was going to say something earlier, but it slipped my mind about how, you know, you released your first book in 2015, I believe. And then you went on to release a book every single year following. So that kind of gives me a bit of an understanding of how that was kind of possible because I guess some people wouldn't have such equal grounds with their partner. And a a lot of mums that listen to this podcast and that talk to me really scramble to find time um, because their partner gets you know, most of the the work time for them. And then the mums will be up at like 3 a.m. trying to do something that they want to do for themselves. So did you get to do much of that in normal hours, writing those books? I'm sure it would have fluctuated over time as well. It did fluctuate. And, and I think um, Christian has always, as I said, been an equal partner, but I think even yeah. he would say that that time, and I'm, I'm yet to meet an author who has not written their first book or, or, or few books in the cracks of the day. And, yep. you know, by sacrificing other things and, mm. you know, no doubt in those first few years, at that time, money was tight for us and I cancelled my gym membership so I could pay for daycare one day a week so I could write. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that was in the, the very early days. Um, I, I worked part time. I remember sitting at my desk when no one was looking and writing my book. Don't tell them. Um, and you know, I, I would, I would sit in the car and write when I was watching my kids um, play sport, and I would um, not go to things. And as an introvert who's quite antisocial, that was kind of okay. But I guess I would often miss out on things because mm. I wanted to write. And uh, yeah, as I said, I'm I'm yet to meet someone who hasn't sacrificed themselves in order to do what they want to do so to those yeah. moms that you're talking about mm. I would say that um it's not just about having an equal partner like to me that I would hope is the base level um, yes, of I what agree. we yeah. should all have yeah. um, and then I'm not of course taking single mothers and things into yes yeah they are heroes like how they do mm. it. it it requires yes um you know hopefully an equal partnership in your marriage and then it also requires a lot of sacrifice and let's face it, mm. blind faith because you have no idea if you yeah. are paying for childcare, taking all this time off, risking your job for nothing, you know, yeah. book will never get published. Mm. So um, it's all of those things. So let's move on to the new book, The Younger Wife, published by Pan Macmillan. It's out right now while this podcast is live. It is a fun and twisty domestic suspense thriller, which I couldn't put down. I just read it so oh, quickly. I read it so long ago too because I knew I was going to be talking to you, um, but I, I read it almost too long ago because I couldn't stop reading it. So would you like to give our listeners a little rundown of what the book is about? Just a little elevator pitch. 
Yeah, so I think if you've read any of my other books, you won't be surprised to hear that it is about dysfunctional families, which is my favourite topic mm-hmm. to write about. And mm-hmm. this one is about the Aston family who are a mother, a father who are in their 60s and two adult daughters in their 30s. And as the uh, the, the title gives away, a soon-to-be younger wife because the the mother is currently in a nursing home with dementia. And the introduction of this younger wife, together with another discovery of something that is in a hot water bottle, Mm -hmm. uh, kicks off this family to kind of look back into their history and um, investigate whether some of the things that they have just come to rely on as normal uh, are actually the um, symptoms of something more sinister. And the book kicks off with the wedding of the the husband and the younger wife and an incident takes place and someone dies. And uh, I always like a bit of death in the first um, <laughs> scene just to yep. kind of get you in. It really does get you in too. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, a, it's a, um, a testament to our brains and the, the dopamine that we need quite quickly, you know, when we're watching something and, and for me it's death. But uh, mm-hmm. then after the death, we then step back and, and we go, uh, like all of my books, um, into more of the exploration of the family dynamics, which while I now write um, thrillers, as it were, or psychological suspense, for me, what's most interesting about it is really the, the family dynamics. And that's what I really loved exploring in this book. Mm. Other than Pam's story, who is the uh, mother in her 60s, which is sort of peddling along in the background, my favourite aspect of the book was the character of Tully. All of her neuroticisms and thoughts about motherhood made me laugh out loud and nod along with relatability. Would you mind reading a snippet for us, for our listeners? Yes. Dad had insisted on having Lockie and Miles as his best men, which was all glory and cuteness for him, all pain in the ass for her. She was the one who had to strong arm them into their tiny little dinner suits and then forbid them to play on the grass. She was the one who had little fingers poking her in the butt during the service, accompanied by their constant asking to go outside and play. And also, were there any snacks? <laughs> if anyone can relate to that character and that paragraph specifically, it will be my listeners. So thank you for writing such a brilliantly accurate and relatable mother character. Uh, are there any aspects of the character of Tully that you see in yourself? Did you write any of yourself into her or is it just the general mother experience? Oh, yeah. I, I heard someone say once that every character is a third yourself, a third someone you know, and a third made up. And, wow. and I, I agree with that. I think that there's a little more of me in Tully than perhaps some other characters. <laughs> and and I, I found something fun would happen when I would go into her perspective because this book is told from from Tully's perspective, but also her sister Rachel and also Heather, who is the, the stepmother. But I I will always naturally go into one character a little bit more easily than, than the mm. others. And with Tully, there was a lot of internal narrative as I wrote uh, her character and some of them may have been direct quotes from my head. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. She was. She's very neurotic. She's very um, uh, real and and uncensored in her um, her beliefs about 
who she is as a mother. She's also a very good mother and um, mm. and and a, a lovely person, but she's deeply flawed and uh, and and yeah, as we all are, as we all are, and, and very mm. human. So mm, uh, she was great, totally. great fun to write. Yeah. I imagine it would have been. On the topic of books, are there any uh, books or authors that you love that sort of play with themes of motherhood? I know, as you mentioned, it does come up most of the time in any family sort of fiction because there's mothers yeah. in everyone's lives. But I do wonder if there's anyone specifically that sort of stands out for you. That's a great question. Well, I loved The Motherfold by Kate Mildenhall. I think yes. you were saying earlier that, uh, that she's a fantastic writer. Um, I... I guess rather than uh, than mothering, I, I'm always attracted to books that are about birth, um, and I mm. thought that that was something that would pass when I lost interest in giving birth, which I definitely have, mm-hmm. and and it hasn't. Um, and and there was a book called The Birth House by Amy Mackay, which really sparked my my interest in, in writing because I wanted to be like her, and I'm I'm still not, but. Uh, I've never heard of it. I'm going to look it up. She's a, a North American, I think, a Canadian writer, um, and and then there is the books that were later made into the the mid, called the Midwife series mm. on, on the BBC, but they yeah. they were books first. And uh, <coughs> as you say, I think that there are a lot of books. Almost every book will go into the subject of of mothering or into the head of a mother or a daughter. But there's something about books about birth and that becoming a mother. Mm. that I I am attracted to that the magnitude mm. of, of that event um is is if the, the title midwife or birth is is on the cover of a book I'll pick it up but yeah um, yeah no individual authors because uh, some of my favorite authors the ones I go to again and again and again Leanne Moriarty Jane mm. Harper uh you know Sue Monk Kidd often there'll be books about motherhood and often they aren't and it's what I love about them is just the way that they are able to to um, go into the head of whoever's story they're telling and tell that story. So, um, mm. but yeah, I'm, I mean, if you go to a woman, um, you're you're bound to get a great story about motherhood. I agree. Say. I'm I'm reading Leanne Moriarty's new book at the moment. Oh, it's fantastic. So good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I thought it might be fun to take a leaf out of your book and. You and your partner do some hilarious one-star reviews on your Instagram and his Instagram too, I believe, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is so humbling and funny. And I also loved watching you and Kate Mildenhall do this at Yarra Valley Writers Festival. So I thought I might be brave and share a one-star review of the podcast, which I'm very anxious about, but you know what? I'm just going to bite the bullet and do it. Do it. Do the voice. Do the voice of the person. Okay. And make and them I've... sound crotchety. <laughs> so this is from Vianetta92, which gives us a little idea of her age. I'm assuming it's a her. It may not be. Okay. It's like the ice cream <clears throat> cake. Yeah. <laughs> now I, that's what I'm picturing. Yeah. Okay. This podcast is okay. I liked some of the conversations and the host has a sweet voice. However, I can't help but think it should be named Wealthy Melbourne White Girl Mum. I find this sort of motherhood style exhausting and annoying. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Thanks for humouring me. It, it actually feels quite good to read it out loud, doesn't it? It feels so good. And I think that was such a good one to, to read because 
I find the ones that are the 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 most cutting are the ones that are not because a lot of the ones I have read out are really um mean and and sort of funny like there was one that said um you know it's like pizza except that pizza should still be good like it's like bad pizza but bad pizza should still be good but this one wasn't I mean that's just hilarious but then I had one one the other day that just said it was all right because it's so middle of the road like this podcast is okay it's not saying bad but I only got one star so I'm like what I'm confused (laughs) well I kind of would rather be the bad pizza than just be all right you know yeah I didn't make any impression on you at all you don't even hate me you know this is (laughs) but they took the time to review you so they obviously made somewhat of an impression well, that's true. But, but I as, loved as your Facebook said, shares as well. Your Facebook screenshots where you, that was so funny. I think that was where I got the, um, it was all right. But <laughs> as we said, and, and unfortunately we were talking before we came on, but I think that the real gift of reading them out, and I have heard this from other people who've gone ahead and read them out, is that it takes the shame out of it. And, mm. and as someone who puts themselves out there, whether it's a, mm. a podcast or a, or a book or a business, um, you, you, do, you feel ashamed when someone doesn't like what you've done and mm. they have kind of put that out there in the public sphere as an as a assessment, like a mark, yeah. you know, like you've been graded in the world where people can see it, it can feel shameful. Mm. Um, and, and to take it back, and and to read it out and have a laugh about it it kind of relinquishes that shame and I I I don't think anyone should feel ashamed for trying um Mm. to do something and so um wherever we can remove some of that shame I think we should yeah it's a great lesson I'm glad I'm so glad that you started this because yeah it's made me feel so much better about it and I spent so much time pining over that interview I mean that interview that that review last year it's the only written review I've had that was one star. So obviously it's very, it affected me a lot. But you know what? I don't care I've anymore. I've got thousands of one star reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even read them all. That's the, and, and that's the other thing about we're talking about success later. That I remember someone saying that you know you're successful when lots of people hate you. <laughs> mm, you yeah. know, the more if your goal is to have you know a million people listen to your podcast, it's going to be you know ten thousand who hate it. Yeah, and yeah, it's so true. You can't possibly be for everybody. No, so detaching yourself from it now, I think, yes, is, is something, or at least the ones that. Um, that really it doesn't matter. And I, I said, I think to Kate, she said, how did you find yourself able to not care what people thought of you? Yeah. And I said, that, that's not true. I don't, I do care what people think. I don't care about what everyone thinks, but I care about being who I say I am. So if one of those one-star reviews said that I was racist or that I had said something that was offensive to a, a minority group, if I had mm. said something that had um, w- w- was detrimental to women, if I had yes. said something that was against who I am and what I stand for and had upset mm. someone, that I would be ashamed about that and yeah, I would yeah. care about that. 
Do mm. I care that someone's said my book's like bad piece? Why do I? That's funny. I don't, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you have to choose what you care Absolutely. about. Absolutely. You should care yeah. about some things, but you yes. can't care about everything. Yes, exactly. And I think that as much as that pained me, that review, it really did make me um, reassess everything that Mother Other stood for and make sure that I wasn't falling into those, those, um, those roles that they were sort of pinpointing me as because I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to be seen as that. So, so as much as it was painful and awful, it was kind of a good thing, you know? Yeah, they can be. Let's, um, ask you one more question because in the interest of time we don't have much left what has motherhood given you oh what has it given me I apart from three beautiful children and and uh lots of of new friends I think one of the greatest things that it's given me with two neurodiverse children is it has cracked my heart open to the plight of so many people and it has reinforced my belief that no one to be awkward or awful or mean or nasty and there are reasons why people behave the way they do and and, and neurodiversity is one of them sometimes people don't have the skills to behave in a way that you deem um, an appropriate way to behave Um, sometimes people have got emotional things that they're going through and that's why they don't show up in the way that you think they will um, that that piece has given me a new understanding, um, obviously in relation to my own family, but it's made me realise, you know, that great truth of you don't know what you don't know when it comes mm. to people um, and and that everyone has a mother, I guess, who loves them. And I believe that. I think even the mothers who don't, um, who don't do the best perhaps for their children, maybe they're doing the best that they can. Mm. And... Uh, and every person that you meet is someone's child and, and is doing the best they can. I think that, yeah. that when you see not only your children but their struggles, you sort of see every child and every human. Um, and I, I want to be clear because I hate things that exclude people that don't have yeah. children. Um, yeah. and, and for me, that was motherhood that showed me that. But for other people, it might be a relationship they have with Another, another adult or a sibling or a, yeah. a job that they have where they work with people um, with, with different needs. Um, and, and there are a lot of other things I've got from motherhood, but that's the one that really uh, stands out for me and, uh, and has cracked me open the most. Mm. Sadly, that's all I have time for today. But for anyone listening, you can buy Sally's new book, The Younger Wife, at any good bookstore published by Penn Macmillan. And I also recommend you follow Sally on Instagram for so much good content. She shares a lot of writerly wisdom, humor, the day in the life highlights, which includes um, yeah, your beautiful family. So thank you so much for spending time with me this morning, Sally. I know how busy your life is and I'm so privileged to be with you for an hour this morning. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and you haven't already, please do subscribe. And if you're feeling even more generous, reviewing and rating on iTunes will do every bit to help this podcast reach more ears and therefore bring more wonderful guests. See you next time.